And uh, the, um, some of you may have received, you may be here for the first time and received an ad, uh, or a little flyer that we sent out to the community. We invited uh, some of our neighborhood to join us for this series because we're addressing some questions that, that people in the church and people outside the church have as well. And part of the vision of our church is to, at times, to, to answer those questions for uh, us to be a learning community and to seek to answer those questions. So the particular question that we're going to engage in this morning is on the topic of miracles. And when I thought about miracles, I had to just think of this particular um, event and thought that for about a little, for a little over a minute, we could enjoy it together. So, Gail. Also convenient that hockey season just started this uh, this weekend. And Steve, this is feeling a little hot to me, maybe to you as well. So just if you can get, get that down a little bit. Um, now, I should just take a moment because some of you, that was 35 years ago. Some of you may not be sure what you watched. That was the 1980 Olympics. And we had never beaten the Soviets we were a true amateur team, college boys against grown men who had been playing for years. And that actually did not win us the gold, but got us into the final game where we did win the gold. But the call that so many people remember is Al Michaels, Do You Believe in Miracles? And it's a great way to start this set of messages by asking you, That question, do you believe in miracles? Uh, The way that you answer that question has a profound impact on your life and the way that you view life. Do you believe in miracles? You know, I mentioned that um, Eric Metaxas, who's a Christian author, wrote a book called Miracles. It has been a New York Times bestseller. There's tremendous interest on this subject. And of course, lots of things are miracles today. A new baby is a miracle. A come-from-behind win is a miracle. Uh, Even making it home through rough traffic is a miracle. Or finding that close parking spot is a miracle. 
So no doubt there is confusion about what about miracles. To give you a little sense of where we're going during this next four weeks, here are four questions that will guide us over this next series. Number one is, if I believe in miracles, are you asking me to suspend belief in science? Adam Gopnik, who is a famous award-winning essayist and journalist, wrote in The New Yorker in 2013, he wrote, We know that in the billions of years of the universe's existence, there is no evidence of a single miraculous intervention of the laws of nature. It's a very commonly held belief. Here's another question. If I believe in miracles, are you asking me to believe in every so-called miracle? Thirdly, the Bible's full of miracles. Why don't I see more today? That's a question that people ask. And fourth, finally, is it irrational? Is it unreasonable to believe in miracles? There are four really relevant questions, both for people of faith as well as people who are, uh, don't hold to a faith. The uh, particular questions we're going to try to answer this morning to get us started are these. Number one, what are miracles? Number two, what is their purpose? And number three, again, is it, is it irrational? I'm sorry, I got, I got, Gail, I did this first service too. I got these confused. Go back to that last slide if you would. Okay. The fourth one there is, I, I don't want to uh, neglect mentioning this, this fourth one because that may be where it's interacting with you today. Um, you may be asking the question, not so much the top three, but what do I do if I need a miracle? And, and then what if it doesn't come? So that will be uh, particularly our last week of this series. We'll address that question. Now, go to the next slide, Gail. Thank you. So the last question today we want to try to answer, is it irrational? Is it irrational to believe in miracles? So that gives you a chance, a sense of where we're going for the next four weeks, and this is what we'll try to accomplish today. Let's ask God to help us do that. Father, thank you for the moments that we can spend together today as a community of believers, and for those, Father, that are in a process of trying to weigh the claims of the Christian faith. Father, we ask you that by your Holy Spirit, you would guide us into truth. Thank you for the words that are written down for us in the Bible, that God record the things that you said and the things that you did throughout history. We pray that you would, um, uh, wherever we're at this morning, whether our questions are more intellectual or maybe our questions are more from the heart, as we Uh, go through these next several weeks, we pray that you would uh, affect and impact us right where we are. Uh, Through Christ, Father, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's start on that first question. What are are miracles? Well, we've already established that the things we attach miracles to is a moving, loose definition. So, Anything that creates wonder, anything that makes us feel warm and fuzzy, anything out of the ordinary, we slap that term miracle on to describe it. I think it'll help us to get a little bit more of a specific definition 
So, who else to turn to? But let's begin with Webster's. What does Webster's say about miracles? Webster's defines miracles as an extraordinary event manifesting divine intervention in human affairs. It's pretty good. Here's how C.S. Lewis defined it. A miracle is something unique that breaks a pattern so expected and established we, would, we hardly consider the possibility that it could be broken. So, for example, Lewis says, if for thousands of years, if women cannot get pregnant without sexual intercourse with a man, and all of a sudden, at a certain point in history, a woman gets pregnant without that happening, then we might call that, we might call that a miracle. Of course, Lewis is referring to the virgin birth. Let's take another look at this. 18th century, uh, the most vocal critic of miracles, yet his definition is somewhat still, still standard, though we're going to question it a little bit, is from David Hume. David Hume wrote a transgression, a miracle is a transgression of a law of nature by a particular volition, a deity kind of pokes his, his, his finger at us, so to speak, or by the interposition, the intervention of some invisible agent. Now, there's some truth, I think, to this. It fits with our other definitions. What we'll question here in a little bit is that, uh, that law of nature. Is, is a miracle really a suspension of the law of nature? We'll come back to that before we end today. So, those are some definitions of what a miracle is. So, through these definitions, we begin to get a sharper perspective. You know, so for example, this past week, I was driving up High Street, and I saw something I never saw before in my life. And uh, what I saw was two deer running across, about 10.30 in the morning, running across High Street, a busy High Street, being chased by a dog. It was the funniest thing you've ever seen. Now, that's unique. That's exceptional. It really didn't give me a warm and fuzzy. It was kind of a sense of wonder, but I don't think it meets the bar of being a, uh, a miracle. What I want to do here in order to get at this idea of miracles, I want to look at a unique account in the life and the story of Jesus. It's from Matthew chapter 9, and this will help us to answer this second question. What is the purpose of miracles? So we've given some definition as a foundation. Now, secondly, what is the purpose of miracles? The Bible actually speaks with a consistent word throughout its fabric, Old and New Testament. This particular episode from Jesus' life will illustrate what the Bible says about miracles. Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 27. After Jesus left the girl's home, we'll talk about that too, two blind men followed along behind him shouting, Son of David, have mercy on us. They went right into the house where he was staying. And Jesus asked them, Do you believe I can make you see? Yes, Lord, they told him, we do. Then he touched their eyes and said, Because of your faith, it will happen. Then their eyes were opened and they could see. Jesus sternly warned them, Don't tell anyone about this. 
But instead, they went out and spread his fame all over the region. When they left, a demon-possessed man who couldn't speak was brought to Jesus. So Jesus cast out the demon, and then the man began to speak, and the crowds were amazed, saying, Nothing like this has ever happened in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He can cast out demons because he is empowered by the prince of demons. Okay, two really engaging stories. Let's break this down a little bit and see if we can draw from this the purpose of miracles. Here's the first one. Miracles always point to God, not the agents. Miracles always point to God not the agents of the miracles. Here we see on display the humanity of Jesus. He displays the same humility. First, look at what he does. He steals those two blind men away from the crowds, away from the curious onlookers. This is no display of power for power's sake. Jesus wants to minister to these two men as individuals, and not trying to appease or wow the curious onlookers. Um, Secondly, he sternly warns them to not tell anybody. Again, this is exactly opposite of what we usually find around these kinds of miracle workers. Jesus understands the purpose of his miracles. He understands how they fit into the plan of his life. Um, He doesn't want that plan to be disturbed by people coming to him for the wrong reasons. Now, of course, they were not very good disciples. They did not listen. I'm not sure we can blame them too much. Can you imagine like, going back to your home and saying hi to people you, you've never seen or hadn't seen since you incurred the illness? And uh, they're probably going to ask you, how'd that happen? What happened to you? What took place? And in that moment, they could not keep from... They couldn't keep from talking about Jesus who had, who had healed them. Um, so, I like the way one person said it. And this is a constant in Jesus' healing. Jesus heals the humble needs of humble people. He heals the humble needs of humble people. This is a consistent ethic throughout the Bible And it throws into question, doesn't it, some of the things that happen today in the name of Christ. When miracles are just thrown around, hey, make your donation, you'll get your miracle. Um, The the sort of cult of personality that arises around uh, individuals that claim to be able to heal, the persona that they have, seems to be directly opposite of what Jesus here. Jesus heals the humble needs of humble people without looking for fanfare. Here's a second one, very important. Miracles often accompanied a new or increased disclosure of God. And that's why they're called signs. Signs indicate that some new truth about God is being revealed. Now, when we think of signs... You might go back to the old M. Night movie starring Mel Gibson. And there, the purpose of signs is to help the 
Gibson is playing a pastor, actually, and help him to try to understand the purpose of his suffering. And so an answer is given that would help him understand, okay, this is why I went through the suffering that I did. Or maybe when we think of signs, we think of, again, going back to an even older movie, Contact with Jodie Foster, and they're, uh, you know, they're, they're trying to detect uh, communication and intelligence from outside the earth. They're looking for signs of intelligence. And so we have to think differently here about how the Bible defines signs. Uh, when we journeyed through the Gospel of John, do you remember that? You remember the signs? And those signs would reveal something new about Christ, some new revelation, some new disclosure about God to the people. And they would also certify, they would give evidence to the reality and the person of Christ. These are what signs accomplish, what signs are for. Thirdly, we have to mention this last one. Otherwise, we might be tempted to think that God just heals for some utilitarian, impersonal reasons. He's got some big plan, some, you know, you're just a cog in that plan, and he's all working it out for some purpose way out there, which is true. He is doing that. But God is also uniquely compassionate and uniquely interested in relieving human suffering. Now, if you look down at verse 36, that even augments this and reinforces what we're saying. Jesus was teaching and preaching and going from village to town. And why was he doing it? He was doing it because of compassion. Compassion. Wasn't interested in self-acclaim. Wasn't interested in some cult of personality around himself. He was interested in love. And so he's exercising compassion. So miracles indicate God's compassion and desire to relieve human suffering. Now, we didn't look. There's, there's some evidence here. If you take some time and look at the preceding paragraphs, preceding passages to the one we looked at, it's not quite clear all that's happening here in a 24-hour period. But the miracles that were just accomplished do seem to be in the same 24-hour period, which included the healing of a, a, a woman who had a 12-year illness and included the raising of a little girl who had died. As a matter of fact, not Matthew, but one of the other gospel writers uh, helps us uh, in, in the term that he used. It's a Greek word, but the Greek word translated means that when Jesus walked up to this little girl, he said something like, sweetheart, wake up. Sweetheart, get up. And our eyes are opened again to see the incredible compassion, the incredible love that Christ had for individuals and his desire to relieve human suffering. Now, look at verses 33 and 34. Here's the reality, though. Now, here's, everything seems great, doesn't it? It's all so good. This is all great, right? I mean, it all makes so much sense. He's a healer. But in verses 33 and 34, we encounter something, don't we? We encounter two different reactions. And so you have the same evidence, the same experience, the same direct observation, but two fundamentally opposed conclusions about what they saw took place. We experience that quite a bit. The crowds echo how exceptional this was. 
They, in this day, they saw a girl restored to life, a woman healed, two blind men received their sight, and now a demon-possessed man set free and speaking. But on the Pharisees' part, they could not deny the miracles. They could not deny the good outcome. So the only vulnerable flank left for them was to question the source of the miracles. And so they alleged that Jesus was operating by some evil power and not a good, not a good power. Well, let's bring this story now into today as we move towards getting to our third question. Eventually, we'll get to that third question. Because there are still two reactions today. Given the same evidence, people still interpret miracles based on their prior beliefs, their prior assumptions. For Christians who believe that God created the world through fiat, that's not just a French car, uh, Fiat means to, to bring it something out of nothing. And what Christians believe is that God brought something out of nothing merely through the power of his voice. In other words, the power of his intellect expressed in his voice. And so for Christians, blind eyes being reconstructed in an instant does not pose any intellectual problem. In a world that God creates, sustains, and cares for, a broad road is open for believers to examine all the evidence because their universe is not closed off. And they can take the, they can take the evidence to wherever it leads them. For the materialist, for the person who says that all that we can see in the world can be explained by natural means. We don't need God to explain anything for us. All that we see, all that we experience has come about by natural means. Sometimes they're called like a, like a naturalist or naturalism or a materialist. The material world is all there is. Their road is very narrow in weighing evidence. Why? Because they've ruled out from the start even the possibility of miracles. You know, miracles can be threatening to the modern-day materialist can't they? Who's rejected God? Why? Why is it threatening? Just like it was threatening to the Pharisees and their power structure, why is it threatening to a materialist the possibility of miracles? It is because if there are miracles, it means the possibility of God's existence, something outside of us. And if he created us, then it follows that this must be a moral universe. And if it is a moral universe, then there must be a moral judge. And if there is a moral judge who created us, then we are accountable to him. We are responsible to him. Now, it may be argued, and perhaps we would concede a part of this argument, it may be argued that, hey, Christian, you have an emotional bias to believe. You have some unmet needs. You want to go to heaven when you die. So you make up a God in order to fulfill those unmet needs. Well, it can be equally argued that the atheist has a moral bias not 
to believe, to not want God, so that they can do, or she can do, or he can do, whatever they want without any fear of the implications of their choices. Now, having said this, let me look at this the other side before, again, we're moving toward this third question. At the same time, here's a really important point. While Christians have, their road is broad in terms of examining evidence and letting it move them towards the truth. At the same time, Christians must not be gullible and believe every miracle that is claimed. Eric Metaxas warns Christians, it is vital we not have a Disney theology that only says believe, one that is merely childlike wonder. Because if we aren't careful with what we believe in, we will end up believing in anything. He goes on. So when we talk about miracles, we talk about things that to some extent must be criticized. What he means by that is must be examined and understood. Otherwise, we are merely being so open-minded that we are simply being gullible. So if you're hearing me say that Christians you know, ought to just uncritically accept every miracle that's claimed, and that's not what we're trying to say this morning. As a matter of fact, the widespread persona of this gullibility amongst Christians is a, uh, is, is a tremendous hindrance to the credibility, to the credence of people accepting our claims. Because in so many occasions, at least for those that are vocal or those that are known, there seems to be a terrible gullibility just to accept because someone claims it. Now, let's go to our last point then. Is it irrational to believe in miracles? Is it irrational? Is it unreasonable to believe in miracles? And if you'll just stay with me here for a moment, I want to talk a little bit about, this is a very, uh, uh, very pressing, relevant issue in our culture, the interplay of science and faith. And just to warn you, I'm going to tweak the religious community a little bit, and I'm going to tweak the science community a little bit. But let me walk through this with you. Because to ask this question is to also ask the question, do faith and science, are they invariably at war with no bridge between them? Are they inevitable enemies? And what I would say to that is, I believe only to the uninformed. Only to the uninformed. Now, sometimes that's on the religious side, and sometimes that's on the science side as well. Science and faith overlap, but they also are answering different questions. Now, when the Bible touches on science, we believe that it is true when the Bible touches science. But the Bible is not primarily a science textbook. It is a book telling of God's redemptive story. When scholars unwittingly try to turn the Bible into a science textbook, answering questions the Bible does not seek to answer, then it is an overreach. See, the problem with that is that it's not interpreting the Bible according to the intent of the author. 
as Christians, we seek to interpret the Bible just like any good book ought to be interpreted, which is to try to discover the intent of the author. And so sometimes the mistakes in those have created a lot of confusion. It was very, obviously very prominent back in the 15th and 16th century uh, with, with, uh, with Galileo and so forth. Um, but there can be overreach when we try to make the Bible say something that it's not, the authors never intended it to say. Now, particularly today in our culture, many science, many scientists, actually, let me say the positive first. In our culture, many scientists today, many scientists understand the interplay, the relationship, the nuance between faith and science and the different questions that they are asking. And scientists that, and there's many, many, many scientists who are very strong, devoted followers and believers in Christ. The problem is, is that there's a very vocal, I'm not sure if it's, I don't think it's a minority, but there are still a very vocal group that are ardent, that are strident, sometimes angry, and they have impacted the public perception on this. They are those that use science to batter faith, suggesting that belief in God and miracles is at a minimum irrational, and this is true, at most, perhaps even a sign of mental illness. Now, let's talk about the reality. What really is the reality? What are the limits? I've, I've already mentioned some things about the Scriptures. There are things the Scriptures do not intend to touch. But what about the limits of science as well? Are there limits on science? Can science explain everything? Well, the reality is, of course, there are a lot of things that science can describe, right? There are many things that science can describe. But here's what science can't do. It cannot explain. Science can describe, but science cannot explain. It can't answer the question, why? So in other words, science can describe the Big Bang and, uh, you know, the, the, the coming together of energy and matter, but they cannot answer the question, where did all that energy and matter come from? Nor can they answer the question, why? Why did it come together? Why did it come together? Those are answers beyond science. And the good scientist knows it. The atheist, the materialist, does not ask the why question. This is interesting. We've got to give him a little bit of understanding here. You see, the atheist or the materialist, they're not even asking the question. They're not asking the question of why. Why did it come to be? And the reason they're not asking it is because they don't believe there's an answer. They assume, they assume there is no answer to that question of why. Why did the energy and matter come together? Because they assume this is all there is. So there's no question even being posed. But if we were to talk to our science friends with grace, we would say to them, my, but my friend, there is, the, there is the contradiction. For your assumption... Your assumption that this is all there is, is not science. It's unscientific because it's unprovable. It simply is an assumption that you're relying on. Do we as Christians rely on some assumptions? Yes, we do. 
They're still tested by reason and tested by evidence. But so does the scientist. The scientist still rest on assumptions. Good science rests on assumptions that are by faith. They cannot be proven. And so one cannot say, for example, one cannot say because of that, because of that one cannot say that to believe in miracles is unreasonable. And again, we as believers have evidence and have reasons why we believe in miracles. Um, I want to show you just a couple of slides here. A couple of individuals through time have commented on this. John uh, Lennox, a math professor at Oxford, well-loved, a lovable Irish guy. Um, he said, rationality is bigger than science. And all he's simply saying by that is that science cannot explain the whole of rationality. Science can describe some, but it cannot explain the whole of what is rational. Uh, this is a guy you may not have heard of, but... He's a famous philosopher, lived in the 1700s from Central Europe, Ludwig Wittgenstein. He's an incredible story. He grew up in a very um, posh, very privileged home. I mean, his parents were incredibly wealthy. He was exposed educationally and artistically to all sorts of things. But there was a deep disease of melancholy and depression running through his family. Three of his brothers committed suicide. Can you imagine that? Three of his brothers committed suicide. He grew up Catholic. Then he abandoned his Catholic faith. But later on in his life, this is a man of a towering intellect. Later on in his life, he became a very devoted believer and follower of Christ. Look at what he says. So insightful. This is several hundred years ago. He says, The great delusion of modernity is that the laws of science explain the universe for us. He says, No. The laws of nature describe the universe, but they explain nothing. They can't answer the why question. Now, let me give you one final example here, and I'll just take a little bit of time to explain this. G.K. Chesterton was a great author in uh, Great Britain. As a matter of fact, he had a profound impact on C.S. Lewis. Some of you are C.S. Lewis fans. Or J.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings, he had a profound impact on him. He wrote a generation ahead of them. And uh, Chesterton was dealing with the same sort of arguments that we're dealing with today. And he has a very fascinating way of talking about materialism and atheism in this realm of, of, uh, of saying that, you know, all, all we see is all, there, is all there is. And what he does is that he, he, he talks about a, a, a madman, which is his way of just describing a person with mental illness. And he asks this question about a person with mental illness. And he says... He says um, he says, you know, a person with mental illness, you know, you're tempted to think that a, a person that's mentally ill is terribly illogical, right? He says the reality is the madman is actually incredibly logical because what he or she does is they fixate on a single idea. They fixate on a single idea, and then their whole world is like a circular rut and they revolve, their whole life revolves around that single idea. And they can't assimilate, they can't appreciate, they, they can't factor into their world all of the life around that very small circle. Now, within the circle, everything fits together, the facts support each other, it's very logical. But the reason that he's a madman is because it dismisses everything else around him 
he or she is so fixated and so much in a circular rut around that one thing. Now, this is what Chesterton says. He says the the materialist is like that madman. The scientist who says that all of reality, I can explain all of reality within the realm of science. It's like taking that little circle. Does it all fit inside the circle? Is it logical inside the circle? Sure it is. But it leaves so much evidence, so much life, so much reality unexplained and unaccounted for. So here's what Chesterton wrote. His debate partner is Mr. McCabe. And if you've read Chesterton, you know that he is a brilliant example of someone who loves and respects the people he disagrees with. And if he gives us anything else, he's given us that legacy of, of, uh, of, of, of banter and debate with tremendous respect. And this is what he says. He, Mr. McCabe, who's a materialist, understands everything. And yet everything does not seem worth understanding. His cosmos, his world, may be complete in every rivet and cogwheel. But still, his cosmos is smaller. It's too small than our world. Somehow his scheme is not thinking of the real things of earth. The fighting peoples. Why do people go to war? Our proud mothers. Our first love. Our fear upon the sea. The earth is so large, his cosmos is very small. He's just saying the exact same thing that we've been saying. Science is limited. It can't explain the whole of reality. It can't explain why we fall in love. It can't explain why a mother sacrifices for her child. It can't explain the sort of duality within us. We're part angel and part demon. (laughs) Science can't explain that. It might describe it, but it can't explain why and how we got to that place. You know, this is the great movement that we're living in today. It's called social biology, right? Social biology is the attempt to say, well, the reason that, you know, the reason that moms sacrificed for their children or the reason that people fall in love or the, people, the reason people do this or that is because there's some genetic disposition. There's some gene within them. Do you, do you follow that? That's an attempt to make social biology an attempt to explain all of reality. And yet to common sense people, it's simply doesn't make sense. Science is limited. It can't explain the whole of reality, the wonder and complexity of human life. And so we have to answer our question, is it irrational to believe in miracles? The answer is a resounding no. Because as Christians, we take a look at all the evidence of the world around us, and we come to a very reasonable conclusion that God created this world. And if God created this world, God can recreate and God can fulfill. Okay, let me close on this point. I want to go back to Matthew. I want to go back to Matthew. And in that chapter, Matthew 9, Matthew's writing, he he has an agenda. Just because you have an agenda doesn't mean you're not factual or truthful, Matthew. We have every reason to believe Matthew is a, is, a, uh, is a reasonable and a trustworthy witness. And in Matthew chapter 9, Matthew's trying to help the Jews that he's writing to to believe and to accept that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, 
Did you notice what those two blind men called him? Very interesting, what those two blind men called him. The two blind men, when they called out to Jesus, do you see how they, what they, how they phrased him? They called him Son of David. Now, why in the world would they call him Son of David? However vague, however fuzzy, however you know, limited still, their understanding, those two blind men, of who Jesus was, when they heard the reports of what Christ was doing, and maybe they went back to their Bibles and read Isaiah 35 or read Isaiah 61, and they thought, I think he's the one. I think this is the one that was promised way back from Abraham and that our forefathers have been taught. I think he's the one. I think this is the one. when, When the Bible talks about this future king, this future David, who will be like David yet so much greater, I think, I think he's the one. I think he can heal us. Jesus asked that clarifying question. Do you think I can heal you? And I think he asked that. Do you believe I can heal you? And I think he's getting at the fact that these guys have a level of faith that's beyond just, I want healed. Sure, I want healed, yeah. Of course I want healed. I'm blind, Jesus. Of course I want healed. But I think he asked the question to bring to the surface that these guys have some notion that this is the Messiah. This is the promised one. That's what Matthew's trying to communicate to us today in 2015. Jesus Christ has the credentials of being the Messiah. And because he's the Messiah, what does he do? What does he do? He understands something. Jesus doesn't break the laws of nature, but rather what he does is he restores what the fall took away. I like the way C.S. Lewis said it. C.S. Lewis said it's like, it's like Jesus has this deeper magic. And don't get thrown off by that term. What he's saying is that Jesus has this deeper understanding. When we think laws of nature, what we think is something inexorable, something like some mechanical, impersonal law can't be changed, can't be altered, can't be manipulated. By the fact that we call it a law, by that virtue itself, means that we've attached to it some kind of mechanical, impersonal attribute. But really, what are the laws of nature? The laws of nature are not independent of God. As a matter of fact, the Scriptures teach very clearly that they're not really laws of nature in that sense, even though they are predictable and they happen all the time. They do what they do at God's command. Psalm 19, for example, makes that very clear. The laws of nature happen because God commands them to do so. God commands the sun to rise and to set. God commands the aspects of gravity to work so that life will be sustained. We'll look at that more next week. All these things work in conjunction and work in harmony, and they work in connection with God. So when Christ heals... He's not interposing on the law of nature. He's bringing something more real, something more permanent, something with longer-lasting depth and meaning. 
He restores what's real. He does have the power to alter and to change. And he has the, all, the power to reverse the power of sin and the power of the curse. He will make all things new. Now, the last little thing about miracles here that we didn't bring up yet. And even these miracles here, the healing of the little girl, the blind men seeing, the deaf man being able to speak. You know, every single one of these miracles, every single one was a signpost. It revealed what was to come. But in that sense, they were all, they were all temporary, weren't they? That little girl would die again. Lazarus would die again. Those two blind men, when they died, they wouldn't be able to see anymore. The deaf guy wouldn't be able to speak anymore when he died. And yet what Jesus was giving in healing them was not just relief from their illness and their suffering here, but he was giving them an indication. He was giving them a signpost. He was giving them a vision of what it would look like in eternity. And that would be the greatest miracle of all, the miracle of eternal life. That's what the Messiah brings. That's what the Messiah came to give. Not just relief from suffering temporarily, but relief from suffering in the end permanently. The gift of eternal life. Not just the, quali- not just the quantity, but the quality of life. That is the permanent, unending miracle that these miracles point to. And it's the one that we can Embrace and receive when we, just like the two blind men, just like the two blind men, recognize that Christ is the Messiah. And you notice what else they said? Notice the other little phrase? What do they say? Jesus, have mercy on us. They recognized that they were undeserving. They recognized it was unmerited. They recognized Jesus had, they had no entitlement on Jesus to do this. They could not insist nor demand If Jesus healed them, it would be an act of grace. If Jesus saves you, if Jesus heals you, it's an act of his grace. That's the way we come to Christ. Recognize he's the Messiah and say, Christ, have mercy on me. Pray with me. Father, Father, thank you for these moments that we can be together as a body, as a community of Jesus' people. And I pray, Father, for uh, us that are believers, that our understanding of your work and activity in our lives would become clear to us and more real to us. And Father, for those that are seeking, investigating, not sure where they stand with you, I pray today, Father, that you would have enlightened and helped them draw a little closer to understanding your words, your simple, straightforward approach that they might, Father, fall into your arms and become your son, become your daughter. We pray for this in Christ's name. Amen.